This evening I'd like to reflect <clears throat> on the theme of contentment. Twenty six hundred years ago, exhausted by years <clears throat> of struggle and striving, the young and somewhat disheartened and disappointed Siddhartha recalled a time as a young boy when he was sitting on a hillside overlooking his father's land and watching a farmer plowing his fields. And he remembered that there had arisen in him a quite unexpected and unsought for but powerful and sublime sense of contentment. And in that contentment, he remembered there was no thought of going anywhere. There was no thought of getting anything. There was no sense of there being anything missing. But in that moment, he remembered it being really characterized by a tremendous sense of ease and joy and stillness. It was a moment of contentment. And that memory was a very powerful turning point in Siddhartha's quest for liberation because it invited him really to, to look at the difference between aspiration and striving. It called him to really examine the very powerful urges that had been driving him to look outside of himself, to look to the future for the happiness and peace and freedom that he longed for. It really made Siddhartha question whether the freedom of heart that he really sought for was going to be born of something that he gained or of what he was going to be able to let go of. That throughout the whole of this teaching, contentment as a quality and as a cultivation is a theme that is repeated time and time again. It features so strongly in the loving-kindness discourse as a source, that contentment is a source of our capacity for kindness. Contentment features so strongly in the teaching of generosity, our capacity to give and to extend of ourselves. It's stressed as a teaching of peace, of joy, and in the descriptions of liberation and freedom. And to read you a poem by, again, one of our favorite books, <laughs> one of the Oh, did ancient Chan nuns. But she said, the entire day I searched for spring, but spring I could not find. In my straw sandals I tramped amongst the mountain peak clouds. Home again, smiling, I finger a sprig of fragrant plum blossom. Spring was right here on these branches in all of its glory. 
encourage you to ref reflect on whether you can remember any moment of deep contentment yourself. Perhaps it's just a moment of stepping outside and really feeling touched by the loveliness of all that you see. And in that contentment, have you ever felt that sense of being able to relax into, into a kind of stillness, to, to feel the cooling of all of the waves of agitation that can be so familiar to us. The agitation that's so often about where we want to go, what we want to become, what we want to get rid of. And in that contentment, in those moments when we can touch it, I think we do get a sense of the heart unbinding, unbinding from agitation into ease. Perhaps there are longer moments of contentment you can remember, where all sense of insufficiency or sense of lack just fades away. And you can feel present, really, in the presence of all things. And what do those moments, if you can remember those moments of contentment in your own life, what do those moments, no matter even how brief they are, what do they teach us about the nature of happiness and unhappiness? Certainly the Buddha speaks of contentment as the greatest of all blessings. And the Dalai Lama very much touches, because it's so pervasive in Buddhist teachings, the Dalai Lama says, if one cultivates simplicity, contentment comes. Simplicity is extremely important for happiness. Having few desires, feeling satisfied with what you have is very vital. Satisfaction with just enough food, clothing, and shelter to protect you from the elements. And finally, there is an intense delight in abandoning faulty states of mind and cultivating helpful ones. That could be our, our kind of teaching of the week. I think sometimes we hear the word contentment, you know, and images of cows grazing in a field kind of arise. But as a doorway to freedom, the quality of contentment we are speaking about in this teaching is not bovine contentment. <laughs> Nor is it a prescription for resignation or a surrender of aspiration. Instead, contentment is presented as something which is, is very vital, which is very alive, and is actually the beginning of a life of freedom. I, think I want to give you a little bit of historical context to this teaching of the Buddha around the four great contentments. If you think back to those times 2,600 years ago when women in India would leave their homes, leave their families, leave their culture to join the Buddha in a homeless life, imagine what that's like to give up everything 
and, and to go into a life where there's no certainties, no guarantees, no stuff, hmm? no stuff, huh? that the, the kind of vulnerability and, and of that life and the courage that it would, can you imagine <laughs> the courage it would take to do that? Hmm? To step out of everything you know and everything that you have into that kind of vulnerability. Now, the ability to rest in a contented heart was truly a key in that life being a life of peace rather than a life of desolation or deprivation. That transition and the significance of contentment is just, of course, as true for nuns and monks today. And I will go on to talk about how it relates to us. But in those early days, the very first instructions that the new nuns and monks were given um, were about the four great contentments of a noble life. And what the Buddha would say was, be contented with any robe you are given, lovely or shabby, or even if you're not given one at all. And even here, the Buddha cautioned against poverty conceit, actually knowing the ingenuity of the human mind. And I'm paraphrasing this a little. He says, don't think that just because you're content with any old robe, it makes you a better nun than Sally down the road who's got a particularly fine one. He said to be content with any food they were given. Remember, the nuns were living on alms. Hmm? Be content with any food you are given, whether it's a gourmet meal or scraps from the table, or even if you're given no food at all. The third great contentment was be content with any lodging you are given, aware of what lodging is for and not worry about being given no lodging at all. You know, I can hear retreat managers all around the world at this point sighing in relief, you know. <laughs> and again, the Buddha would caution, cautioned against conceit, not using our own contentment as a way of judging others. And the fourth of the great contentments was to discover the happiness born of letting go of unhelpful states of mind and the great joy in developing really helpful, unbounded states of mind. Now, clearly what the Buddha was pointing to here was really all about attitude. It's all about how we, how we engage with our world the attitude we bring to all things. Because he wasn't speaking here about contentment as, as about endurance or deprivation or cultivation of misery or punitive, but of, speaking of contentment as joy. Now, of course, then we might pause and say, well, you know, this is fine for monks and nuns, you know, in the past or in the present. But what does it really have to do with us as lay people living in the world, often with a lot of stuff, um, you know, with all kinds of, of responsibilities and commitments? 
But remembering this teaching of contentment is not about what we have or what we don't have. What it's really about is no longer agreeing to the condition, to the world of conditions. No longer agreeing to the world of conditions, whether it's food or clothing or experience, to be the gatekeeper of our happiness and freedom. If we think of any single moment when we're really wrestling with and struggling with the world of conditions, you know, whether it's the weather or the food or our roommate or our cushion, I mean, just acknowledging we can struggle with anything. When we're struggling with the world of conditions and the mind is there saying, I need this, I can't bear this, I must have this, I must get rid of this. Have you noticed in those moments we are actually instantly unhappy? We're just instantly suffering. And what we're really experiencing then is the suffering of discontent. Now, admittedly, at times in life, conditions can be really hard. Conditions can be really, really difficult. You know, conditions of changes in people we care about, changes in our bodies, changes. So many conditions in this world can be really, really difficult. But the very radical nature, I think, of the Buddha's teaching is for us to question whether these conditions, no matter how difficult they are, whether they really ever had the power to project us into distress and anxiety and a sense of insufficiency. Or if that is a power that we give to, that we hand to the world of conditions, unpredictable conditions, Now, I also just want to acknowledge, you know, we can say, oh, well, you know, it's all right to talk about this, you know, as if that, you know, we talk about letting go or not being beholden to conditions. All right, if you're kind of like middle class, you know, and you've got that luxury of of doing without. But bearing in mind that the Buddha taught this teaching of not being beholden to conditions in India, in, in poverty, in people who were struggling on a daily basis with very difficult conditions. And I think the central teaching in the Four Great Contentments is that the source of joy and the source of sorrow, the source of content and the source of discontent really lies in our own hearts and not in the world of conditions. There's a wonderful poem by by Rumi Sorry, bye. Bye, Kabir. He said, I I said to the wanting creature inside me, what is this river you want to cross? There are no travelers on the river road and no road. Do you see anything moving about on that bank or resting? There is no river at all and no boat and no boatman. There is no tow rope either and no one to pull it. There is no ground, no sky, no time, no bank, no ford. Do you believe there is some place that will make the soul less thirsty? 
In that great absence, you will find nothing. Be strong then and enter into your own body. There you have a solid place for your feet. Think about it carefully. Don't go off somewhere else. Just throw away, put aside all the thoughts of imaginary things and stand firm in that which you are. I think this understanding of the sources of joy and the sources of sorrow is really the beginning of contentment. And I, I would really encourage you to so, so get a sense of all those moments of discontent in a day because they are really like the fourth heavenly messenger of possibility waving at us from the crowd. And every moment we feel the surge of distress, you know, that says, I don't like this, I don't, don't want this, I need something else. Surely that surge, if we understand it well, has written upon it the reminder and the invitation just to stop, to be still, to be aware really of where we are delivering the calmness and freedom and sufficiency of our own hearts into the hands of conditions. And perhaps this is something we really don't need to do. We can't always control conditions, but there are many ways that we can learn to be at peace with them. There are many ways that we can learn kindness within them. Contentment, I think, is, is really not a feeling or a state. It has a lot more to do with what we're choosing to do with our attention. Have you noticed how the, the, the kind of magnetism of wanting to feed discontent endlessly with thought. Hmm? It's like what we're doing with our attention, you know. You know, think about it, you know, if you're, if you're kind of like struggling, you know, with, with your roommate or, you know, I don't know, anything we could struggle with, you know. Uh, how we, we start to kind of feed that discontent with thought, with insistence and with demand. It's what we're doing with our attention. We can do something else with our attention too. You know, we can sometimes just really notice that happening and find the willingness to return to just this moment, to cultivate content in just this moment. It, it's a little bit, I quite like this poem by David White, where he says, enough, these few words are enough. If not these words, this breath. If not this breath, this sitting here. This opening to the life we have refused again and again until now, until now. Sense of enough. Now, 2,600 years ago, the Buddha very much identified the force of craving as one of the just few, few, it's fortunately it's one of the short lists, few forces that held the power, holds the power 
to dispossess us of freedom. That craving is one of those few forces that holds the power really to cause immense distress and struggle and sorrow. He likened craving to a thief that takes up residence in our heart with the mission to convince us of insufficiency. And that really the mission of craving is to steal the contentment and freedom in a very real way to blind us to our capacity to see the peace and freedom available to us in each moment. That craving is one of those few forces that has the power to send us roaming in the world, seeking for what we believe to be lacking in ourself. And any of you who have any familiarity with Buddhist teaching will notice the Buddha had an awful lot to say about craving. And it refers to it as a poison that leeches the joy and happiness from our hearts and relationships. He likened craving to a forest fire that consumes everything in its path. So he said it's a very good idea for us to learn to understand this fourth force. Unfortunately, provided us with a roadmap of craving. And I think it's a very, it's a very useful roadmap. Because I, I don't think there's anybody here who probably can't relate to this roadmap. Probably if you couldn't, you probably wouldn't be here. <laughs> so we may all be able to follow this. Okay, so here are the three cravings, right? The craving for sensory pleasure, the craving for becoming, and the craving for non-becoming. In every one of these cravings, it, its total emotional characteristic is discontent. Huh? Craving for sensory pleasure, for becoming, and for non-becoming. So let's look at the first one, the craving for sensory pleasure. Now, there are countless, countless moments of loveliness in each day. Huh? The bird, the sunset, the loveliness that we see around us, sometimes the loveliness we see in others, and at times the loveliness we see in ourselves. The lovely thoughts we can experience in a day, the lovely emotions, the, the, the loveliness of kindness and, and generosity and, and sensitivity we can all experience in a day. And it's really important for us to appreciate those moments of loveliness, because they gladden our hearts. They, they bring a sense of, of spaciousness. They connect us. And, and really, too many people I find in practice are almost like afraid of loveliness, as, as if it's a more noble or a more virtuous practice if we spend every possible moment grappling with suffering. And so, you know, I practiced in that culture for quite a while in the early years of my practice, you know, where you would sort of envy people who were, like, really miserable, because it was a sense that they're really going deep, aren't they? And a kind of loveliness was verboten, you know, you don't do loveliness because you're not practicing seriously, you know. But loveliness is part of the fabric of all experience. And in many ways, I think in loveliness, we actually really get a taste of contentment. Because you notice in those moments of loveliness, the mind is not there screaming at you saying, oh, this is a waste of time. 
you know, or this just won't do, you know, or this is not quite enough. It's really important to acknowledge that the pleasant, whether inwardly or outwardly, has never been a problem or an obstacle, but it really can get hijacked by craving. We want more of it, you know. We want, you know, we can step outside, it's totally lovely, and then the thought arises, I better have a better view from the top of the hill. You know, we can, the meal can be lovely, you know, lunch can be lovely, and then you notice the thought arises, well, that was so good, you know, tomorrow I'm going to be first in line, so I'm really right there for seconds, you know. The thought pops up about the person we really like, you know, and then we thought, oh, I have a few more of those, you know, a little fantasy, a little embroidery, you know, let's really build this one up. Amazingly, craving even has the power to really destroy and undermine the lovely. You know, a few years ago, teaching in, in Switzerland, and, and I got to tell you, you know, the center there is really in this amazing spot in the Alps, and you know, you sit in the meditation room, you've got this huge alpine range of mountains in front of you, it's pretty amazing. And, and someone came, came to the retreat, and she said, I'm so disappointed, you know? Last year I came here, I just couldn't believe how beautiful it was here. I came this year, it's not nearly as beautiful as I remember it. <laughs> And that way, you know, like the Alps have been here for a long time. I don't think they changed that much in a year, you know. But actually, what altered it? What altered it was the craving for the repetition of something to actually be as I remembered it. We can even begin to employ craving as a way of getting rid of suffering. Isn't that interesting? You know, we feel unhappy with our mind state. We feel unhappy with our body experience. You know, we feel happy with the schedule, unhappy with the schedule. I think, well, I'll fix that, you know. I'll, I'll, you know, if we were home, we might turn on the TV or open the fridge, and here we see the temptation to sneak our cell phone out of our suitcase, you know. A little texting here would surely lift my spirits, you know, <laughs> make everything okay, you know. It's, it's like it's not going to work. This is not, not going to work. When we don't see craving as the cause, so one of the primary causes of discontent, we compound discontent by trying to use craving to get rid of discontent. I think it's so important to see that. And what are we really doing when, when the lovely gets overtaken by craving? What we're often trying to do is to create a world where we only have pleasant experience. And I think the subtext here is, I can only be happy in the pleasant experience, that I can only be peaceful in the pleasant experience. And contentment in those moments can feel very far away from us, but it's truly not. It's really about cooling the fires, cooling the fires. Another poem from one of the Chan nuns. Spring morning on the lake, the wind merges with the rain. Worldly matters are like flowers that fall only to bloom again. I retire to contemplate behind closed doors, a place of true joy, while the floating clouds come and go the whole day long. A little retirement behind closed doors. It's not shutting out the world but really stepping back from that craving. Okay, so the second craving, second kind of form of craving in this roadmap, the craving to become. 
the craving to become someone. Someone, we have an idea in mind of who that someone is. I think, can you remember in childhood, you know, the various fantasies you entertained about who you wanted to be in this life? You know, I don't know, the famous artist, you know, the best ballerina, you know, you know, uh, pop star, successful, you know, a lot of those fantasies, you know. And a lot of those fantasies are just distant memories. But in the moment, we don't always see how discontent, how discontented we can be with who and how we are. It's almost like an existential discontent. You know, I'm not enough, I'm not good enough. And that discontent can, in a moment, launch us into the craving to become. Now, what does that do? You know, I don't like who I am. I don't like what I'm experiencing. You know, I don't like the idea of myself or the image of myself. So what is it, what happens when we get launched into the craving to become? Well, we try to divorce ourselves from what we're experiencing in the moment. And in that movement, to reject who we are, to deny, to abandon, we're moving away not just from the unpleasant experience, but what we don't always see in that movement away from the unpleasant experience, we're also moving away from our capacities for acceptance, our capacities for kindness, our capacities for compassion, and again, it's very easy to try and use craving as a solution. Now, I think we see this a lot on retreats. You ever come across the frustrated meditator? You, you know, are frustrated, our inner frustrated meditator, you know? I'm an experienced meditator. I shouldn't be falling asleep. I, as you know, I'm a meditator. I should be always bright and alert and the best yogi, you know. I want to be peaceful. I want to be perfect. I want to be still. The list is potentially endless. Really, we want to be the kind of person who has a certain kind of experience that fits in with our image of the kind of person we should be. And anything else is unacceptable and seen as a failure, you know? I wasn't kind enough, I wasn't generous enough, I wasn't supportive enough, I wasn't peaceful enough. That's the craving to become. To become the person who has a certain kind of experience that we're willing to accept. The craving for non-becoming, the craving for non-existence, well, the most extreme form of this, of course, is suicide, self-harm, self-abuse in some way. It's, but in its much more moderate forms, it's the wanting and needing something to go away, to disappear, to, to be dispersed, to be overcome, to be annihilated. And that craving to get rid of, the craving for non-becoming, arises generally in relationship to the unpleasant. <laughs> a minor cough in the hall, a major experience of disappointment and failure can be met with exactly the same reaction. Isn't that interesting? Only different in degree, you know? But exactly the same reaction, the fear of, you know, the, this is unacceptable. 
the unpleasant experience, the unpleasant events, the unpleasant people, the unpleasant emotions, the difficult thoughts, the fear of not being able to bear it, the fear of being overwhelmed, the fear of being lost. So we want it to disappear. It's a very powerful force. Now, I think if we're quite honest and we begin to track the movement of craving <laughs> in our day, in our mind, in our heart, it can seem so pernicious and so pervasive that we can be almost, it's almost inconceivable to imagine its ending, isn't it? it it's like, what would our life, our mind, our heart look like in the cessation of craving? But, you know, this is what we're asked to imagine in this teaching. The Buddha speaks of liberation as blowing out the fire of craving, cooling the fires of craving. Now, when the Buddha speaks about that, he's not just talking about not, please, not just imagining that we're going to sit in a cushion, you know, and have some ultimate breakthrough experience and retire happily ever after in enlightened bliss. It's not like that. What we really do, we really practice blowing out the fire as a path. And you know what that practice is? It's a practice of cultivating contentment. It's a practice of cultivating contentment. Cultivating contentment in the face of all of those powerful surges of craving, all those urges to pursue something we don't have or to get rid of something we do have. Practice contentment. Cultivate contentment. In all the moments we find ourselves leaning forward into the future that hasn't arrived, imagining the better moment. Cultivate contentment. Cultivate being here. In all the moments when we seek to become something else and deny who we are, this too is where we cultivate contentment. Because it's really important to see that we are practicing craving and it's a practice of unhappiness. And we practice contentment and it is a practice of happiness. And every moment we do it, we're just cooling those fires. In a way, we're learning to liberate the moment. Now, being very aware that contentment is in no way a sacrifice of aspiration. In no way it's a sacrifice of all of the very wholesome desires and longings of our heart, of our life. All our longings for, for peace, for love, for kindness, for freedom, for for honesties. In a way, none of these aspirations are in any way separate from the fabric of contentment. In many ways, they're really part of it. And again, one of the, one of the Chan nuns says, I urge those of you who aspire to liberation, in aspiring to liberation, be diligent. If your mind is not completely sincere, you will wallow forever in the bitter sea. <laughs> This great earth is vast and without limit, and sentient beings are too many to count. Yet how many people are there with the sense to leap out of the bitterness of samsara? And we don't always see craving as craving. I think it's good to acknowledge that. But what we do see much more easily is agitation and restlessness. That's actually much more noticeable 
When our minds feel so full of thoughts and plans and, you know, we're walking through the building and our eyes are prowling and we're consuming the notice board, you know. When our bodies find it hard to be still, you know, when we're impatient and frustrated and judgmental, all of this is actually agitation. And you know what? It's the visible face of discontent. And if we would, in any single moment of agitation, just lift up the blanket a little bit, and look at what is beneath that first layer of agitation. What are we going to see? Craving. Now suppose we just go one, one, step, one step further, you know, and, and, you know, and look underneath that craving to become, the craving to get rid of. Look underneath that layer of craving. And what are you going to see? I think we're going to see a sense of insufficiency a belief in insufficiency. And if we can find the courage to really look those surges of craving and agitation in the eye, we will probably find evident within it this sense of the anxiety of me. You know, the anxiety of me. Insufficiency, you know, not having enough, not being enough is the belief system of the anxiety of me and its offspring is craving. Now this, that goes right to the heart of the teaching of liberation. Because if the anxiety of me is left unquestioned, then its offspring craving will follow just as night follows day. Simple but not easy truth. If we don't make our home in agitation, if we, then we don't make our home in craving. If we don't make our home in craving, then we don't make our home in the belief in insufficiency. This is what the Buddha described as the heart of the teaching, you know, the cultivation of the luminous free mind. Now, I've got to say, in an ideal world, we would first discover unshakable freedom and contentment. And in the light of that discovery, we would lay down agitation and craving and let it all fall away. Now, perhaps for some very extraordinary yogis, it help, happens in that order. I haven't met them yet. For everyone else, we're asked first to cultivate contentment. First to cultivate contentment. And then, by making that commitment to contentment, craving falls away and the possibility of genuine freedom emerges. Now one of the ways I want to mention just to finish up here that the belief in insufficiency really manifests is in the form of doubt. You, anybody experienced any doubt today? <laughs> Self-doubt. Self-doubt. That's one of the forms of the belief in insufficiency, self-doubt. Now that then expands out, you know, to doubt the path, to doubt what we're doing here, to doubt our sincerity, to doubt our possibility, to doubt whether we have the capacity to really make changes. And you can really, if you notice today, that whenever there's doubt, how it weakens intention and how it weakens commitment, 
Now, you, it's important to get a sense of that. You know, it's like, it's like you could get out, you know, come in the hall after today and really have the intention to have a really mindful, dedicated day. And, you, and you know, you sit and you face the uncooperative mind, you know, and you walk and you face the uncooperative mind. And right away you get, the doubt comes, you know, it's, it's like, it's too much, I can't do this. You know, a hike is a much better idea, a nap's a much better idea. You know, you go into a walk and maybe you have the intention to sustain the attention for the out, entire walking. And then you see, again, you meet the uncooperative mind and you feel the wavering, don't you? And the wavering of intention, the wavering of commitment, I can't do it. And that wavering, please be aware that that wavering convinces us of insufficiency. So the wavering arises from a sense of incapacity and insufficiency, and then the wavering loops back to feed that sense of incapacity and insufficiency. And that is a toxic loop that goes round and round and round. So where does it stop? It certainly doesn't stop by indulging doubt. In reality, it stops by us stopping. Us stopping. Being still. Really being aware of how intention and commitment are our tr greatest allies in the cultivation of commitment and contentment. What do we commit to? Maybe just one breath. Maybe to just one step maybe to just one moment. But every moment of commitment, of that kind of commitment, is stepping out of the belief of insufficiency and into the sense of possibility. And the discovery of contentment may be no further away than the moment that we're in. I'd like to end with a, a poem um, translated by Andy Olensky, uh, and it's about, the, the title of the poem is No Greater Contentment. It's a very warrior-type poem. Mm -hmm. When the thundering storm cloud roars out in the mist and torrents of rain fill the paths of the birds, nestled in a mountain cave, the nun meditates. No greater contentment than this can be found. When along the rivers the tumbling flowers bloom in winding wreaths ador adorned with verdant color, seated on the bank, glad-minded, she meditates. No greater contentment than this can be found. When in the depths of night in a lonely forest the rain David drizzles and the fanged beasts cry, nestled in a mountain cave, the nun meditates. No greater contentment than this can be found. When restraining herself in her discursive thoughts, dwelling in a hollow in the mountain's midst, devoid of fear, she meditates. No greater contentment can this be found. When she is happy, unobstructed, unencumbered, unassailed, having ended all defilement, she meditates. No greater contentment than this can be found. We take just a moment to sit quietly together.
Sometimes a walking period before that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.